And now today's scripture reading is from Luke 24, 36 to 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do you doubt arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance to the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name up to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to Christ. Christ. So, uh, the news anchor, Peter Jennings, uh, in a moment of honesty as he was reflecting on faith, said uh, these words. I was raised with the notion that it was okay to ask questions, and it was okay to say, I'm not sure. I believe but I'm not quite certain about the resurrection. Now, Mark Twain, in a more blunt way, said that faith is believing what you know ain't true. So, according to the Bible, if you are a person who likes the pastels and the seersuckers and uh, the candy and the egg hunts and the festivities and the feasting, around Easter, but you've got your share of doubts about the actual story that gave birth to this holiday, uh, the story of a man in time-space history who literally died, uh, literally was buried, and who literally rose from the dead. Uh, you're in good company, and it's not just the company of contemporary doubters. Uh, I would, some, on some days, put myself in that category as a contemporary doubter, but also people in the Bible itself, people that lived their lives alongside Jesus, witnessed Him turning water into wine, witnessed Him walking on water, witnessing Him uh, raising other dead people back to life, witnessing Him giving some of the most magnificent teaching that they'd ever heard in their lives, teaching with authority and so on, they still doubted. Matthew 28, 17, it says that when his most loyal friends and his most faithful followers saw him on the third day after he'd been dead and buried, it says that they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. 
If you go over to John chapter 20, you get, you get another perspective on, on the account because we have a picture of uh, the man that, that history has uh, uh, come to know as Doubting Thomas, but really the better uh, way to describe him is he was unbelieving Thomas because some of his friends came and said, we've seen the risen Lord, and Thomas said, you know what, I'm not going to believe it. I will not believe until I see him with my own eyes, until I touch him with my own hands. Not going to believe it. So, if you are one of those who's come here this morning as our guest, um, so glad you're here. You may have come through an invitation. You may have come through the website. If you came through the website and you've been perusing it, uh, you probably at some point came across a statement about how we welcome people from all perspectives and all religious or non-religious backgrounds into our community to consider the claims of Jesus Christ. And you might, have, you might recall that on our website it says that includes curious agnostics, it includes spiritual seekers, it includes skeptics, it includes doubters. If you are one of those many, many, many people who describe yourself in that way, uh, first of all, a moment of full disclosure, I have an agenda today. And my agenda is to convince you that this is not fake news, that it's the truest, most reliable story that's ever been told in the history of the world. And I'm only going to give you two points, which if you're not a normal churchgoer, you're probably glad about that because you probably know that most preachers give you three. I'm only going to give you two. And it comes in the form of two questions today. Is it true and who's it for? So, is it true? When our older daughter, uh, our oldest daughter, who's a freshman in college now, turned 12, on her, ter- on her 12th birthday, she announced to uh, my wife and I, that she had come to the conclusion, to the realization actually, that the happily ever after stories really are just for people who are 11 and under. As a newly enlightened 12-year-old, she'd seen the light. And what I'm going to try to convince all of us, even those of us who have serious doubts but have been churchgoers for a lot of years, is that this is a unique happily ever, story, ever after story because while it is a happily ever after story, it's not just for kids from 1 to 11, it's for kids from 1 to 92, like we sing in Christmas. And if you're 93 or 94, you get looped in as well. So the Bible belabors this point, that it really happened, that Jesus Christ was really born to a virgin and the man that she was engaged to, that Jesus Christ really did all the things that the Gospels say that He did, including the miracles, that He really did die, that He really was buried, that He really did come up from the dead, and that He really did appear to His disciples. Verse 36 and following says that Jesus Himself stood among them. It says that they were all startled and frightened. And then Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? Well, 
Maybe because nobody's ever risen from the dead before. Maybe that's why we have some doubts. Are we hallucinating? And, and this episode is actually Jesus' invitation to them and also to us to start fiercely doubting our doubts. To doubt our doubts. Notice what Jesus does. He engages their senses, right? Because that's where we process and discover reality, through our senses, right? And so, it says that He looked at them and, and, and said, see my hands and my feet. Touch me and see. And it says that He showed them His hands and feet. And this is, I think, one of the, 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 one of the funniest verses in the Bible. He looked at them and He said, you guys got anything to eat? You, know, you got a little bit of food, a little, you know, fish or something. And they handed him a fish and he ate it. So one of those people that was, was there witnessing that amazing moment was the Apostle Peter, who would later write to, to anyone whose heart is open to being convinced about this, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And Peter's compadre, John, in one of his letters wrote, we have heard Him with our ears, we have seen Him with our eyes, and we have touched Him with our hands. And and notice with both Peter and John, the use of the word we, they're both referring to a a, a, a unanimous consensus among those who knew Jesus the most, twelve of them to be exact, eleven of whom were so convinced that it was true, were so convinced by what they had seen and touched and tasted and heard, that they became martyrs, that they gave up their lives. Now, For those who say they were the eyewitnesses, either they collaborated together and decided all of them unanimously that they were going to die together for something they knew was not true, or they were willing to die for something that they knew was true. Maybe like the more contemporary uh, Francis Schaeffer would say, they came to the conclusion after seeing the risen Christ that there is only one reason to be a Christian, and one reason alone, because it's true. So certain that they would give their lives for it. There there are a couple of other considerations from the Bible, and then I'll I'll talk about a couple of things outside the Bible. I'm engaging your head right now with the first half of the sermon, then I'm going to try to engage your heart uh, with the second half. The two go together. It's one of the beautifully coherent things about Christianity is that it engages the whole person. Other considerations, one of the first eyewitnesses and the prominent eyewitness is Mary Magdalene. A little bit of history on Mary Magdalene. She uh, was known to, uh, to get into sorcery and witchcraft and, and, and uh, was reported uh, by Scripture and by other extra-biblical accounts to have been possessed with demons. You know, a second century critic of Christianity, uh, his name was Celsus, he, he actually said this, the fact that Mary Magdalene of all people is recorded as the first eyewitness proves that there's no way Christianity could be true because in those days, 
a, a woman was not allowed to testify in court because a woman was not regarded as trustworthy. I know, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, we all know the women in our lives are a lot more honest typically than the men in our lives, and it's always been that way. And yet there was a misogyny and, and, and a, a, a male uh, sort of patriarchy-dominated elitism and sexism that pervaded that culture. And so a woman could not even testify in court. And so if you're saying that your chief eyewitness is a woman, nobody's going to believe you. If you're going to try to make your case, then you're going you're to find one of the men. And you're going to say, hey, it was Peter, or it was, it was John, or it was James, or it was so-and-so. But you're not going to, say, you're not going to invoke the name of, of one of the women who wouldn't have even been allowed to testify in court. And, 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 and you know, another sort of subtle but very important message here is, is how much Christianity represents a reversal of the world's values, because, because this is the person, Mary Magdalene, that Jesus targets to, to confer the most dignity upon. <laughs> You know, one who had had a tortured soul, been involved in witchcraft and sorcery, and, and, you know, sort of marginalized by society as a woman. And Jesus says, you know what, she's the one that I'm going to choose to be the first witness. Not likely to have been reported this way unless that's the way it precisely happened. Another one is Saul of Tarsus, who came around later, who had once been a militant opponent to Christianity. And then he has this sudden, abrupt, about-face conversion, 180 degrees, and it's recorded in the ninth chapter of Acts. When what happens? When he encounters and gets confronted by Jesus who'd come up from the dead. He was on his way to, you know, persecute and imprison Christians. And this same Saul of Tarsus would become the Apostle Paul, would end up writing about a third of the New Testament and would become, you know, the man who had once been the greatest enemy of Christianity would, would, would become the greatest friend and advocate and champion for Christianity. And he would write in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection in particular, and he would be so bold as to say this, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then it discredits the whole thing. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christians are pitiful because our whole life is based on a lie. But if he did rise from the dead, it changes everything. And then he goes on to write. It's like he double-dog dares. Uh, both the doubting believers and the, the doubting secularists of his time, these were open letters. They were sent out to the public, shared very publicly. And he said, all of you know, well, he didn't have a keyboard, I guess, you know, a parchment and a, all of you know that there are over 500 people already out there still living. And you know they're there, and you know that you can go talk to them anytime. You know they too would give their lives rather than, than recant their, their profession that they encountered the risen Christ in their lives. And, you know, it's a fair argument. You know, the, the, the doubter in all of us would say, well, this is circular reasoning. You know, what makes the Bible different than Peter Pan? you know, or, or, or then, you know, Aesop's fables or something. What, what, this is just the Bible defending, you're just defending the Bible with the Bible. That's, that, that's not convincing. Okay, so I don't have all the time in the world this morning to go through the whole thing. There are books out there if, if, if you're interested in this sort of stuff. But what I do want to say is uh, it is also worth considering how much intellectual muscle is out there of, of people who 
have bought into this, like really, really smart people. Like, for instance, every single Ivy League university except for one of them was founded by Christian ministers and Christian lay people. Vanderbilt, Belmont, Lipscomb, founded by Christian people. And then there are skeptics, intellectual titans, who were skeptics, who, who, who then looked into the historical data and such, and, 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 and engaged the realities of Christianity and, and what they saw Christianity accomplishing in the world that, that was unexplainable any other way, and they became Christians. You know, Simon Greenleaf is one of them, distinguished Harvard professor uh, in, in the law school, one of the founding professors of Harvard Law School, wrote the treatise on the law of evidences, which is still considered by legal scholars as the greatest volume ever written on the use of evidence to verify historical events. And Simon Greenleaf, setting out to disprove the resurrection, because he said it was a hoax and a myth, setting out to disprove it with, with all of his resources, uh, the Harvard you know, legal scholar that he was concluded that there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other event in history. Oxford theologian C.S. Lewis, he did more than write brilliant children's books. He's a historian at Oxford who once described himself as an atheist who was angry at God for not existing. And then when challenged to consider the realities of Christianity by his friend J.R.R. Tolkien, he would later conclude that the the heart of Christianity, this is a quote from Lewis, the heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. Anne Rice, the writer of the famous Vampire Chronicles, Interview with a Vampire and, and, and all the sequels to that, describes herself as a Christ-haunted atheist who lost her faith in the non-existence of God. New York Times, David Brooks, recent convert to Christianity. If you're a science person, you could add to that list Pascal, Copernicus, Galileo, Sir Isaac Newton. We have well over a hundred of, of, of Nashville's leading scientists in our own church community here, here in the Silicon Valley of Healthcare, Nashville, Tennessee. Some of the, the leading scientists and researchers completely bought into this, who would say to you, my science and faith do not contradict one another, they support one another. And, and it really boils down to this, if, if, if there really is a God, and if, if, if there really is a Creator, you know, who's powerful enough to, 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 to speak the galaxies into existence, would He not also be powerful enough to suspend His own laws in order to accomplish a virgin birth and a resurrection from death to assure us that these words are trustworthy and true. So it turns out, just from a strictly intellectual standpoint, with the backing of many intellectual titans, that it takes more faith once you look into it. It takes more faith not to believe it than it takes faith to believe it. And so, gently, I want to say, is, is our chief hang-up, is the main thing that gives us pause about buying into this truly intellectual 
or is it more volitional? Because the truth of the matter is, if Christ came up from the dead, that means that He has absolute claim over our lives. If this really happened, then that means that all of us are accountable to every single thing that Jesus said, which could really be summarized into three categories, admitting you're a sinner, renouncing your pride, and surrendering your whole life to Him. Intellectually, it's just a nice dinner conversation over a glass of wine, but volitionally, it'll wreck your life to buy into this stuff. It'll wreck your life in the best sort of way, but it it will change your life for good. And we're afraid of that because we don't like change. Is it true? I, I suggest that, yes, it is true. Second question, who is it for? And we'll again depend on the resurrection accounts to answer that for us. Who is the resurrection for? Who is Christianity for? Who is Good Friday and Easter for? It's for well-meaning hypocrites. That's who it's for. In verse 49, Jesus says, I'm sending the promise of my Father on you. And who's the you that He's talking to? Again, it's, it's these disciples who are greeting Him after this miracle of coming up from death. It includes Peter, who if you know anything about Peter's story, he was characteristically abrasive. Uh, he had coward issues. Uh, he was the one who fell the hardest. He denied Jesus three times publicly. It includes Mary Magdalene, who I've already talked about, who was into sorcery and demons and Ouija boards and things like that. There was Thomas, who wasn't just a doubter, but he was a declared willful unbeliever. I will not believe unless I see it with my own eyes. You could add to these Noah, who was a drunk, Abraham, who put his wife in an awfully vulnerable place in order to protect himself, unprotective husband, Jacob, who was a habitual liar, David, who committed adultery and murder, Solomon, who was a womanizer, the Apostle Paul, who had been a bully. And then we've got church history. It's not just messed up people in the Bible. So, I came across this article last week, and the title of the article was, The Strange Encouragement of the Church's Appalling History. And here's an excerpt from that. In many ways, the story of Christianity is full of light, mission, education, art, health care, abolition, compassion, justice, but there's an undeniable dark side, attacking, burning, crusading, drowning, enslaving, flogging, ghettoizing, hunting, imprisoning, Jew-hating, killing, lynching, and so on through the entire alphabet. What makes this difficult to stomach is that the people involved, as far as we know, have loved God, followed Jesus, and received His Spirit. You know, even some of the people that we learn from on a regular basis here in our community at Christ Pres, John Calvin participated in burning a man at the stake. Martin Luther made anti-Semitic comments. Jonathan Edwards owned slaves. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was unfaithful to his wife repeatedly. And so, how could the person who wrote this article call it a strange encouragement? I mean, isn't this enough to discredit and disqualify Christianity from, from serious consideration? 
Here's the takeaway. If there is hope, this is the thing I like about the Bible most, second only to Easter. The thing I like about the Bible the most, as one who's been studying it for about 29 years, is all the screw-ups that are in there. Because if there is hope for them, that means there is hope for me, and there's hope for the jacked-up people that I love. Can't emphasize that too much. Christianity, the gospel, the resurrection is for anyone, and this is really the scandal of Christianity. It's universal accessibility. That's its scandal. It doesn't discriminate. If you were here on Good Friday, and I, I, I hope that Pastor Russ Ramsey's message was recorded so you can download it. It was masterful. And what, what Russ did was he just took us through the experience of Peter and, and what it must have been like to be Peter as he betrayed Jesus only a couple of days after swearing his allegiance, I pledge allegiance to you, Jesus. Everybody's going to forsake you. I'll, I'll grant you that, but I won't. I will be right there by your side all the way to your death. And it's Peter who fell the hardest and who fell the most publicly. And what Russ said, among many other things about Peter, is that Peter is a picture of us all because Peter is duplicitous. He simultaneously loves Jesus and betrays Him, and that's the story of every Christian every day. We simultaneously love Him and betray Him. You know, just this past week, just a couple of days ago, the day before Good Friday, you know, because I've been feeling more Good Friday, like a Good Friday person than an Easter person this past week, if I'm being completely honest, with a room full of friends and strangers. I was talking to my wife about several things that I don't like about myself, and, and, and a couple of them were manifest this past week in, in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions. And I, I, I looked at my wife over dinner, and I said, do you think I'm a fraud? Do you think I'm a poser? You know, because I've been preaching a lot about Pharisees and hypocrites as we, you know, do our series right now on the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I just said, hey, you know, you, you know me better than anybody. We've been married for 21 years. Do you think I'm a fraud? Do you think I'm a poser? Do you think I should quit ministry and go into vinyl repair? Because when I, when I see Jesus crying out to the Father from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first thing that comes to my mind is, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken me? You know, you see the very best of me. My wife sees worse than that. God sees worse than what she sees. And of course, my best friend and my wife said, here's the deal. You need to listen right now to everything that you preach to all of us not just part of it. You've got the sin and brokenness and corruption part down right now. You also need to preach to yourself the release part, the resurrection part, because you're all over here in Good Friday, but you need to get your heart to Easter as well. And then I walk away from that conversation thinking, you know what? I have felt worse about myself this past week than I probably have in the last 20 years. And maybe, just maybe, it's for your sake. Maybe God orchestrated that for you as you sit there with whatever you feel ashamed about. 
and whatever, you know, tempts you to want to quit yourself, whatever makes you tired of yourself. Maybe God wanted to make sure that the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church on Easter Sunday walked into the pulpit with a glorious limp instead of a self-righteous swag. And so here I am, relating to Brennan Manning, who put this paradox so perfectly that Christ came for well-meaning hypocrites. When I get honest, I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I'm a rational animal. I say that I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. So one of my friends, a local pastor named Ray Ortland, I know a lot of you know Ray and are friends with Ray, he pastors another church now in Sylvan Park that he and his wife Janie planted uh, several years ago. And they adopted early on what they call the Emmanuel Church mantra, and it has three parts to it. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. So I've already covered the complete idiot part, I hope, to your satisfaction. (laughs) But part two for complete idiots, my future in Jesus is incredibly bright. You know, Romans 8 talks about how the vast majority of the human experience in, in this messed up, busted up world that we're in is more like a Good Friday experience than an Easter one. And it's very honest. Again, another place where the Bible is so honest. We groan, it says. All creation groans. Every person, every place, everything is frustrated. And, you know, Russ opened us today to tell us why. The mortality rate is one person for every one person. hundred years from now, this room is going to be, if it's still here, it's going to be filled with all new people. And some of you say, well, you know what, we, we've got, you know, we, we've got our three-year-old on paleo, and so, you know, she's probably going to, going to outlast us, or gluten-free, right? Uh, you know, she's going to live to 110, okay, 130 years from now. This room is going to be filled with all new people if it's still here. And so, in honor of that, I wore my happy socks today, and I'm going to tell you why I wore my happy socks. These were a gift to me, and I, I, the person that gifted them to me has terminal cancer. I went over to his house maybe a month ago to pray with him and his wife with a couple of the other pastors, and he was wearing happy socks, and we asked him, where'd you get those socks? And... It was just delightful that the most sober and the most optimistic person in the room was him. You know, facing the reality head on, not shoving it under the rug, and being hopeful and, 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 and exuding levity. Happy socks. And the next week, his son finds me in the sanctuary during a worship service and said, my dad has a gift for you and Pastor Todd and Pastor David, and each of us now has our own pair of happy socks. And I said, I'm going to wait until Easter to wear these happy socks. 
Because what these happy socks remind me of is that cancer doesn't win. Death doesn't win. Mourning, crying, pain, divorce, estranged children. It does not win. It does not get to dictate the storyline if the resurrection is true. If you are a person who belongs to Jesus, if you're a person who belongs to Jesus, that means that your best days are always in front of you and never behind you, no matter what your story is right now. If you're at your life's peak, guess what? It gets better. If you are in the dumps, guess what? Everlasting spring. It's coming. Empty tomb verifies that. I love what Kathy Keller said. You know, they didn't roll the… The the stone didn't… The angels didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out. The angel rolled the stone away to to let us in. You know, Anne Lamott says that we're Easter people living in a Good Friday world. Now I'm realizing I need to take up an offering, a personal offering after this service because I have a bet with two members of our staff that if I go over 30 minutes with any sermon, I owe them a $100 bottle of wine. (laughs) I've been on a really good run, but I just went over my time. So (laughs) I'm just going to relax a little bit and I'm going to keep going. get my hundred dollars worth. <laughs> it's really short, I promise, but it, but it might be the most important thing that you hear from my messed up lips, unclean lips today. Third aspect of the Emmanuel mantra, learning from another church, right? Because as our vision statement would say, we are a church for all churches and not just for ourselves means we get to learn from people who are doing it better than we are in this way or that way. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. So, I'll close with a story about my friend Ann. So, a little story about Pastor Russ and I. We pastored the same church. Patty and I planted it in Kansas City. Russ came on as an associate pastor, and then then when we left, Russ pastored that church, and so Russ knows this person as well, and Lisa knows this person as well as Patty and I do. Her name is Ann, and our first encounter with Ann was when, we sh- when she showed up at church, had no idea how she got there, no idea if anybody invited her, but she, like many of you, had an opioid addiction. And she was in the, at the very beginning of the process of sobering up. And life was very hard and very painful for her and for her kids. And she drops her boys off the nursery, goes into the service, and then after the service comes back to the nursery to pick up her kids. And it turns out that her two boys had bloodied some noses that morning in, in the nursery and had broken some toys and, and really just come in like a tornado. And, you know, one of the people in the nursery, you know, told and hey, got some hard news for you. Sorry. Um, and, and so Anne just stood there paralyzed and yelled at the top of her lungs in front of a couple hundred children and parents that time. Shoot! Except replace two vowels with one and you get the word that she shouted. And then you could see the blood just fill her face with embarrassment. And then she 
grabbed each boy's hand and took the walk that no doubt she had walked many times before. It's the walk that we call the walk of shame. And one of the people in the nursery decided that she was going to write a letter to Anne about that experience. This is what Christianity looks like. This is why it's different. This is why it's better for you than any other philosophy or path that you might consider. The response to the S word in front of the children, including three of her own littles, by the way, was, Dear Anne, it was lovely to meet you, and I write to thank you for giving me the most refreshing experience I have ever had in a church. And it was refreshing because it reminded me that the presence of Jesus And ideally, the presence of Jesus' people is the safest place on earth to fall apart. Thank you for showing me Jesus today. And so, the woman that we thought we would never see again walked down the corridors early the next Sunday with a swag. Story gets better. Two years after that, Anne became the director of the nursery in that church. And she was not a good one. (laughs) And didn't last long. And Pastor Russ and I got um, an email a year ago-ish from the person who's pastoring that church now um, telling us that Anne had relapsed and that she died of an overdose. And so here's what I want to tell you. This is what I want to tell you. You know, maybe your doubts aren't about Christ, but your doubts are about His accessibility to somebody like you. Anne fell asleep high, high as a kite. And she woke in the arms of Jesus Christ as sober as she's ever been, as clean as she ever will be, And as dearly and thoroughly loved as Peter, James, John, Thomas, and all the others were when they were valiantly giving their lives as martyrs for the resurrection. See, because as my friend Rankin Wilburn, Los Angeles pastor, likes to say, and I think I'm just going to say this every Sunday, I feel like a broken record, but it's, it's the most important statement that you'll ever hear. God does not love us to the degree that we are like Jesus Christ. God loves us to the degree that we are in Jesus Christ. Angel did not roll the stone away to let Jesus out. The angel rolled the stone away to let us in. You know, Flannery O'Connor puts it this way, all you need is nothing, all you need is need. That's just another way of saying this, going with Jesus, it will cost you one thing. It will cost you your pride. And if you're a bargain hunter, 150 years from now, 
you're going to need Jesus a lot more than you're going to need your pride. You need this right now as much as Anne needed this in the moment of her death. You know, one of our pastors, Todd Teller, shared a very joyful moment that he had a week or so ago. Our, me- our most recent adult convert to Christianity in our community, Todd, got to be the one to have that conversation with her and be part of that. And as Todd is explaining to her death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and what that means for us, forgiveness of sins, you know, every day better than the day before, your, your, your best day is always ahead of you, never behind you, all of this, Todd's describing this to her, and, 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 and he, she asks the question to him, what I'm going to leave all of us with, when she said to him, why would anyone not say yes to this? Let's pray together. Our Father, the angel rolled the stone away not to let Jesus out. It's Jesus who is the stone that the builders rejected, created the stone, so He would have no need of an angel's help. The angel rolled the stone away not to let Jesus out, but to let us in. Thank you that the grave clothes are folded and that for the Thomas in us, the unbelieving Thomas, the betraying Peter, the adulterous David, the bully Saul of Tarsus, promiscuous Mary and Rahab, the abrasive Peter, the cowardly Peter, Abraham, the terrible husband, Noah the drunk, for that person in us, would you convince us? Would you support my agenda this morning, Lord, to convince us all that this is not fake news and that there's one reason and one reason alone to be a Christian because it's true, but there's also another reason because it's beautiful. Thanks be to God. Amen.